Buckle up, let's go. Uh, as Josh said earlier, we're in the midst of a sermon series called The Thread, where we're going and preaching one sermon from every book in the Bible, and pointing it to Jesus. And this week we're starting the, the section of the Old Testament known as the Prophets. And just a little bit of a heads up for you as you kind of try to track, and I know a lot of city groups are, are looking ahead and studying the, the whole book the, the week before. So if you ever find that you want a little bit more than my sermons, uh, the city groups are a great place to connect and dive a little deeper and see how the whole of the books kind of connect together. But this is how we're going to do the prophets. We're not going to do them canonically. That's just a fancy word to show how smart I am. Canonically means the order in your English Bibles. We're actually going to do them chronologically, meaning uh, in the time, right? Like from the first to the, to the end. So we're going to go and try to kind of preserve the story as best we can. And so Jonah is one of the older prophets. Next week we're going to be in the book of Amos. And if you're interested in all in finding out where in the world are we, you can always just go to our website, uh, rockhillcc.org slash thread. And there's a ton of resources there, uh, including the preaching calendar. All right, would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for... Just the profound sense that your spirit is already heavy on this place. That you want to speak to us. That you want to encourage us. That you want to reveal to us that you are a God rich in mercy and abounding with steadfast love. And so God, I pray that just as you messed with Jonah, that you'd use the story of Jonah to mess with us that we might see your scandalous mercy as beautiful, not just for ourselves, but for anyone who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak today? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Here's a brief intro video on Jonah. The book of Jonah was written by the prophet Jonah between 793 and 785 BC. He was called by God to travel to the hostile nation of Assyria to denounce their patterns of wickedness and beckon them to repentance before God. However, instead of obeying God's command, Jonah charters a boat to sail in the opposite direction, as far away as possible from Assyria. While on the journey, God sends a violent storm to steer Jonah back to obedience. The sailors recognize God's divine power at work and plead with Jonah to call on God for mercy. Instead, Jonah chooses to be cast overboard to escape his call to Assyria. His plan is upended as God provides a big fish to swallow him and carry him back towards land. Jonah prays and commits to obedience as the fish spits Jonah onto the shore. Jonah arrives at the capital city of Nineveh and spends just a single day preaching to the people. Immediately, the king and all the Ninevites respond with earnest repentance despite Jonah's thin efforts and God forgives them, sparing their city. Jonah is enraged by God's merciful treatment of the enemy and leaves the city in a tantrum. God challenges him, asking if his anger is justified, but Jonah's heart remains bitter. In this story, God extends mercy to the sinful people of Nineveh, just as he mercifully deals with Jonah's ongoing, unrepentant disobedience. All right, if you've only ever heard the story of Jonah from a children's Bible, you are in for a little bit of a surprise this morning. The book of Jonah is unique among the books of prophecy in the Old Testament 
Uh, for this reason mostly. Whereas most of the Old Testament prophets are a compilation of the words of the prophet to a bunch of people, the book of Jonah is rather a story about a prophet, and frankly, a really bad prophet, one who disobeys God because, God wa- because he doesn't want God to show mercy to Israel's enemies, the Ninevites. It's famous for being a kid's story or a story from a kid's Bible about Jonah and the fish or Jonah and the whale. But here's the truth. The story isn't actually about a fish at all. That's a relatively small, almost insignificant part of the story. The story is about how God's mercy sometimes offends us when it's shown to people that we don't like or that we see as a threat to ourselves, and how we can confront the, the idols in our own hearts that reveal or see God's mercy as being a bad thing. So we're just going to jump in the story. We're actually going to read through the whole thing and see how Jonah's story God will use to confront our own story. So I'm going to actually read through it in the New Living Translation because it just makes it really plain when we're dealing with large sections of Scripture. You can actually read the whole story of Jonah out loud in about seven minutes, so it shouldn't be that long. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He, brought a, he bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Let me just pause for a second to help you get their bearings in the book. First, we read that this is the story of Jonah, the son of Amittai, which often, when we look at a prophet, we, we should ask ourselves, does he appear anywhere else in the Old Testament? Does he appear in any of the books of history? And we find that he does, and that his story is rather sketched from the get-go. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, Jonah shows up and preaches a prophecy to Jeroboam II, who is one of the northern kingdom of Israel's worst and most wicked kings. He tells them that this king should go into battle and that he is going to regain a bunch of land that the northern kingdom has lost, but God is with him, he should go. But then, a little bit later, we see in the book of Amos that God raises up another prophet, Amos, that we're going to look at next week, sends him to Jeroboam II and actually reverses Jonah's prediction that everything's going to go well for him. So in light of that, we should already be a little bit suspicious of Jonah and where his heart really is at. We see already that sometimes he lets his nationalistic pride for his people and his country blind him to God's heart for other people. I'm sure glad that's never a problem today, right? So God appears to Jonah and gives him a message to speak to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, the nation of Israel's greatest military and political threat. Frankly, they are an evil, violent, brutal people that God probably should judge. Seriously, if you do any study into the ancient Assyrians, They invented new forms of torture. They were willing to crush anyone opposing them or standing in their way. And ultimately, 
they become the doom for the northern kingdom of Israel about 60, 70, or 80 years after Jonah. You'll notice, if you know your Bible, in 722 BC, it was the Assyrian Empire that wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Jonah is right to be afraid of them, to see them as a threat, but he's wrong to run away from God. So God appears to Jonah and gives him a message to speak in the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and Jonah doesn't want to go. So he does something really foolish. He tries to run as far in the opposite direction as he possibly can from Nineveh and from God. He boards a ship headed for the the region of Tarshish. Think modern-day Spain or the very end of the known world as far away as he could possibly get from obeying. Why does he do this? We're not told exactly right here, but as the story unfolds, we're going to see more and more of Jonah's heart. Now, one more brief little hyperlink that I just kind of want to point out to you so that you would see in the story. The prophet Jonah is the only prophet that was explicitly sent to the Gentile people. Now, other prophets sometimes had a message or prophesied against some of the Gentiles, but the only prophet in the Old Testament that was sent to a Gentile people runs to the city of Joppa, a little port city just outside Jerusalem on the Mediterranean coast, and flees in the opposite direction. Now, if you fast forward in your Bibles to the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go and make disciples of all of the nations of the earth, all of the peoples that are on the planet. I want you to go and preach the good news too. And as we read the book of Acts, we see that they kind of camp out in Jerusalem until until persecution actually spreads them out, and then they begin to share with the Samaritans and those uh, that are already kind of Jewish in background. Peter, the apostle Peter, is in the city of Joppa when God appears to him in a vision and when he explicitly sends him for the first time to a Roman centurion. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you think that Marvel Cinematic Universe is filled with a bunch of Easter eggs that show you what is to come, it's got nothing on the Bible. How it links all of these things together, and we get there and we're like, that's what that was about. Or look at how Jonah utterly failed and ran in the opposite direction, and in the very same spot, Jesus and his followers actually obey. That was about that. Isn't that cool? All right, we'll keep going. Back to the story. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives, as you obviously are not paying attention, right? Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Big surprise there, right? Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this. For he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it, they groaned. 
And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. O Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin. And don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. You have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. There is so much that we could say about the plot moving forward here. But if you look at the narrative, we find that everything is backwards here. Everything is upside down. Consider this. The prophet of God is doing everything wrong while the pagan sailors, who are usually known for their godliness, right, are painted as God-fearing men. Jonah is asleep while they are fighting for their lives. And when they finally wake him up, he says, Oh, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And we're thinking at, at, at this point, Jonah, you are on a boat. You know that God has made the land and the sea. What makes you think that you can run from this God on the sea, right? I mean, what a joke. It's, it's meant to be absurd. We're supposed to see the ironies in these statements and in these characters, if God made the land and the sea, he can't run away from him. Finally, when they figure out what's going on, what is initially seems like a heroic and self-sacrificial act, Jonah says, just throw me overboard and the storm will quiet. Actually, it might be his most selfish thing yet. Now, these men, these pagan sailors that we would expect nothing but filthy language and godlessness from, have already dumped their cargo into the ocean, i.e. all of their prophets, because of Jonah, because he's running from their God. But notice how they don't immediately get angry and vindictive toward him. In fact, what we see the opposite. They're reluctant to throw him in. Instead, even after all of this, they try to row back to the land. And only when they have no other choice do they throw Jonah overboard. The sea quiets. And they respond in awe and fear of the Lord, offering a sacrifice to Yahweh in the boat. Everything we expect in this story is exactly the opposite, isn't it? It happens even more so. Let's continue, verse 17. Now the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the, depths, into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath the wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. And so he's, this poetic language, I've, I've sunk down, I'm, I'm dead, I'm in this watery tomb, so to speak. But even in this moment, I'm going to look to you, Lord. I'm going to look toward your temple. I sank beneath, verse 5, the waters... The waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. That's a vivid image, isn't it? 
I sank down to the very roots of the mountain. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. And my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their back on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. And I will fulfill all my vows. For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. It's inside the fish that Jonah cries out to the Lord. And this fish, which has become the topic of most of the conversations surrounding the story of Jonah, becomes not a tomb for Jonah, but a strange form of deliverance, doesn't it? For three days and three nights he is in the fish until the fish vomits him up on the land, and God gives Jonah another chance. Now, if you're here today and you're naturally skeptical by nature, you, you've got a bent, you, 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 you will look at this story and see, 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 the Bible's absurd. I mean, no one can live inside of a fish for three days. Now, i got to tell you, if this is the, the thing in the Bible that bothers you so much and keeps you from exercising faith in a supernatural God, then, then you're not going to like the rest of the Bible either. Because the Bible is a supernatural book about a supernatural God who sometimes does miracles. True, most of the time, things operate according to pretty predictable natural laws that he has created, but God has every right and does supersede these things in his dealings with his people to teach us some things. In fact, we see further in the story, Jesus, when reflecting on his upcoming journey, his death and his resurrection, talks about the sign of Jonah being given as a signpost for what he is about to do. Die, be buried three days, and then rise again to preach good news to people who don't deserve it. And Jesus' tomb just like the fish in Jonah, what looks like defeat and death turns into a vehicle for the most profound of deliverance for God's people. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah has a bit of a change of heart, we see, but not fully. He's still incredibly consumed with himself. I mean, notice how many times the pronoun I is used in that particular prayer. But after his time inside the fish, he decides to obey God when given a second chance. So we read in verse, or chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And that's it. Like Jonah obeys... Kind of, right? I mean, it, it's like he gives the absolute bare minimum of an acceptable level of effort that God would require. We're told that it would take three days to walk all the way through the city of Nineveh, and Jonah gives it a day. The first day he's there, he blurts out the bare minimum message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Notice what he doesn't say in his message. He doesn't tell them who the message is from. He doesn't tell them why the judgment has come or what they're supposed to do in light of this message. And he doesn't even mention God. It's obvious that Jonah doesn't really want to be here, isn't it? 
The fish helped him to obey, but not from the heart. He certainly doesn't want his preaching to be effective, but look what happens next. Revival breaks out. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent a decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. Now, garments of mourning for a cow, that's got to be something to behold, right? (laughs) They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done, And how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind, and he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. This wicked, violent people hear the word of the Lord, not even a very good sermon, and are utterly broken by it. They believe. They repent. They humble themselves and they throw themselves upon God's mercy. And God shows mercy. He relents. He doesn't bring the pronounced judgment upon them. See, this story shows God's scandalous mercy, doesn't it? Toward those who repent. When genuine repentance takes place, God's heart is to forgive and to show mercy toward broken, sinful, evil people. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, I've gone too far. There's no way in the world God could ever forgive me. I've done too many horrible things. The story of Jonah this morning for you is a story of good news. That if God is willing to forgive people like the Assyrians, he can forgive you. You're not beyond his mercy and his grace. You're not too far gone The whole story of the Bible shows God's willingness to pardon and to use and to love broken people like you, like me, like the Ninevites, and even Jonah. Now, does that mean that God lied in his message to the people? Now, if you actually look at the five words of Jonah's message, you see a little ironic twist. The word that's often translated as destroyed, 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed, is actually the word overturned. And this word can be used in one of two ways. It can be used in the way Jonah intended, to be overwhelmed, to be overran, to be destroyed, or to be overturned, turned over, to be transformed. And that's exactly what happens. Jonah's words come true, just not in the way he had hoped. So what's Jonah's response? We would think that a prophet of God would be happy, right? After all, his job was to speak God's word to God's people that their hearts might return back to the Lord. 
He should be thrilled. In fact, it's the very opposite that happens. He's ticked. Let's read in chapter 4. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became angry, very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I went, ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Whew. This is the part of the Bible that rarely makes it into the kids' stories, right? God, I knew who you are, says Jonah. I knew what you are like with your hair-trigger mercy. They don't even have to be truly sorry, God. You're so quick to forgive. Don't you know what they've done? Don't you know who they are? Why would you show them mercy? I'd rather die than live in a world where you show mercy to people like that. Now, Jonah's being honest, isn't he? <laughs> Probably too honest. But if you notice, he takes the very character that God has revealed about himself and he throws it back in God's face. You know, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when God speaks his name to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he takes God's very name and he throws it back in his face and he says, just kill me. God, you shouldn't show mercy to them. How dare you? I'd rather die than live in a world where Assyrians can escape. There you have it. The real reason he fled. It wasn't because he was scared of them. The real reason he wanted to be thrown into the sea he didn't want God to show mercy to his enemies, to the enemies of the nation of Israel that were such a threat to him and the people. He had allowed his nationalistic pride to blind him in such a way where he viewed the very character of God as a threat to what he truly valued and worshipped, his people, his security, his safety. The book of Jonah forces us to wrestle with the question, is there anyone that you don't want to see in heaven? The reality of God's mercy and grace to the undeserving sounds beautiful when it's applied to our own lives. But how do we feel when God shows mercy to those who have wronged us, who've hurt us, who've wounded us? I mentioned before the Assyrians were horrible people. They invented torture techniques like skinning enemies alive and allowing them to bake in the sun. They were known for removing limbs, hands, feet, fingers, toes, and torturing their enemies before they ultimately killed them. They would set up the dead bodies of their vanquished foes on stakes outside of the city walls to try to crush and demoralize their enemies. They even invented the technique of beheading them and throwing the heads or catapulting the heads back into the city as kind of a psychological warfare that would break the people. It's one thing to, to think about this in theory. It's another thing to wrestle with the reality that God showed them mercy when they repented. Those who are so blatantly violent and evil. 
if you're anything like me, I want mercy and grace for myself and for those that I love, but judgment without mercy to those who have hurt me or hurt the people that I love. And this is where the book of Jonah messes with us, doesn't it? Where it digs into our little bubbles of what we think God should be and pops them. Is God's mercy and grace good when given to those who have hurt us? See, there's this tension that builds and builds and builds throughout the Old Testament. It's this, is God merciful and gracious or is God just and holy? And on the one hand, we want God to be merciful and gracious and on the other hand, we long for justice. We care that God is holy and perfect and worthy of our worship. And that tension is not resolved until the cross. See, the good news for Christians is that we don't have to choose between a God of mercy and grace and a God of holiness and justice, but rather we get both. And those seemingly opposite attributes of God meet as Jesus hangs on that Roman cross. See, there's a reason that God had to come and die on a bloody Roman cross. There was a very real debt of sin to pay. There was an actual atonement for the sin that needed to be made so that God could be merciful while also upholding his justice. Now, we might expect God to smite Jonah right then and there, wouldn't we? I mean, after all, he has earned a lightning bolt from on high. But rather than sending a lightning bolt, he patiently instructs him with an object lesson. Let's read the rest of the story. Verse 4. The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Maybe God would relent on his relenting. And the Lord God, verse 6, arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. It's the little things, right? But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. What a drama king, huh? Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And then it ends. That's it. The last line in Hebrew is, and also the cows. God says to Jonah, you care so little for 120,000 people and their animals and so deeply for a vine that provided shade for your head for a day. You need to reassess your priorities. 
And I believe the book of Jonah is him reassessing his priorities, written in many ways as an act of repentance to show how dumb and childish he was. It's interesting that God doesn't engage with Jonah in a philosophical or ethical discussion, does he? He engages him by giving and removing from him a small physical comfort. He causes a leafy vine to grow over his head and shade him in the hot Middle Eastern sun. And then just as quickly, he raises up a worm to eat it and it's gone. Now, this is truly amazing, isn't it? Notice what didn't get Jonah's attention. Hearing audibly from the Lord did not get the attention of Jonah. A storm that surged up immediately didn't get through to Jonah. Three days in the belly of a fish didn't get to Jonah's heart. Seeing all of the men and the women and the children and the animals in Nineveh repent and humble themselves didn't get a hold of Jonah's heart. What ultimately gets his attention is a vine, a small physical comfort. I found that it's often when our physical comforts are removed that that God finally gets our attention. As much as I hate to admit it, I am Jonah, aren't I? I can hear about the suffering and the plight of people in the world, but until it begins to make me uncomfortable, I pretend it doesn't exist. It's crazy. God helps Jonah to understand his own heart by showing Jonah how attached he got to something so trivial and insignificant, a vine that provides shade. And it's Jonah's attachment to that small physical comfort that finally allows him to begin to see God's heart for people created in his own image. People that God describes as not being able to morally tell their left hand from their right hand. And God says, I am right to have compassion on them. I am right to have a heart for the animals and livestock that I have created. And the book of Jonah then just ends abruptly right there, forcing all of us to wrestle with God's heart of mercy. What's the point? The point is meant to humble us, to to cause us to see God's mercy and grace in a new light. It's meant to provoke us to ask the question, is there anyone in my life that I think is beyond God's mercy? If so, then most likely I don't view myself rightly. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace humbles us and causes us to view the world completely differently. It forces us to realize that I don't bring anything to the table when it comes to my salvation. I'm no better than the next guy. I'm no better than the next girl. I, too, am in desperate need of God's mercy. Now, this has a profound way of reshaping the dynamics of our community, doesn't it? It means that I'm no better, and neither are you. No one is better than another. No one has earned God's favor on the basis of their own merit or their own goodness. We all stand helplessly in need of his grace. I think this is what's so eloquently captured in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just let me read this, key in on verse 16. For Christ's love compels us or controls us 
Because we are convinced that one died for all, that's Jesus, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. God's grace and love shown to us changes how we view everyone else. We no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. As we close our time in Jonah together, we're going to turn our attention to the communion table. And as we reflect upon Jesus, the true and greater Jonah, who didn't just sink down into the sea for three days in a fish, but was killed and buried in a tomb and rose again on our behalf. I want us to consider how the regular discipline and celebration of the Lord's table shapes and forms our community together. Every time we come up to receive the elements, we are outing ourselves. We are making a bold declaration to the rest of the believers in the room that says, I need him. I'm a sinner. Receiving the mercy and the grace of Christ, Jesus my Savior. And even though I have stuff that I'm still working on and working through like you do, I don't stand in an elevated place above you. We all come to the table to receive mercy and grace. You know what that means is that if you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus before, maybe you're here because a neighbor invited you that, and they were just different and you just felt compelled to come or maybe you came with a classmate. Or the good news of the gospel is that there is a Savior and his name is Jesus that though your sin separates you from a holy and a just God, there is one, Jesus, who came, who lived perfectly in your stead. He died as your substitute, bearing in his own body the wrath and justice of God that you deserved. He was buried for three days and then rose again in victory over Satan, sin, and death, that if you put your faith and your trust in him, all that he accomplished is now yours. All that he did is now transferred to your account so that God now judges you on the basis of Jesus' resume rather than your own. How do you tap into that? You simply believe. You put your faith and your trust in him to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You humble yourself as you look at your sin and you reach out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now many of you have done that and the, the Lord's Supper is simply a reminder for you to never forget, to never grow beyond the gospel of God's grace. Just as you need to eat food and drink every single day of your life to nourish you, to, to give energy to your body, so this act of remembering Jesus, you need to take it in. You need to believe it. You need to believe it today like you believed it yesterday. And just like food and drink has a way of nourishing and encouraging your faith. So if you're here and you're a believer, if you're here and you're ready to out yourself as a sinner in need of God's grace, then I want to welcome you to the table to receive freely from our great Savior, to remember who he is and what he has done, and to look forward to the day when you get to eat it again with him in the kingdom.
if you're here today and, and, and that doesn't describe you, you're, you're not a Christian, you're not ready to be a Christian, I just want to say I'm glad that you're here, but please don't participate and out yourself if it isn't true. Let's pray. God, thank you for the communion table and how it nourishes and encourages our faith, how it reminds us of deep and beautiful truths that we need mercy. I thank you, Jesus, that you paid the tab so that we could freely come and eat. Pray that we would worship you, that we would stand in awe of you, and that your mercy and grace would humble us as we relate to any other image bearer of God. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.